Welcome back to the Florida History Podcast. I'm Carter Krishnire. And I'm Robert Bucciolato. And Robert, Claude Pepper. Epic yes. name, particularly for progressives uh, in this state. Actually, an epic name in American history. And I think as we get further and further away from the New Deal and that yeah. era of politics, and there seems to be more romanticism and more scholarship about that era yeah. uh, from historians all over the country uh, writing about FDR, writing about uh, the, the early stages of the Cold War, Truman's presidency. Claude Pepper's name uh, continues to circulate, or in fact, I think his, his image, which was already sterling, particularly here in this state, keeps yeah. getting elevated as a true great uh, in Amer- Florida and American history. Well, you know, and we, you know, we've talked about it, you know, in, in preparation for the show. And, um, you know, you brought up the point that he was always squeaky clean, which is amazing because he was in government for upwards of 55 years. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he was, um, I, I, not only was he a, an icon at the national level and at, uh, you know, the Florida political scene and in Florida history, but he represents one of the great political comebacks of any era, which I'm sure we'll go into later. But, um, one, one of the things I wanted to share with the the viewers was, um, as you probably heard a few times, my, uh, my granddad was in the Florida house for 20 years representing, uh, Pembroke Pines, uh, from 72 to 92. And every single two years when he'd have to run for re-election, the most valuable endorsement that he could get for that area was not the governor, was not even the U.S. senator, um, probably wouldn't have even been the nominee for president. It was Claude Pepper. And it was, it was something that a lot of Democrats nationally were trying to get. In fact, um, particularly in the 1980s, which I'm sure we'll get into more, he was really the dean of the House of Representatives, and he was just this revered person. I mean, you had people that, in his district, I don't think his district has seen a Democratic congressman since he passed away, it was not a very liberal citadel like in Tallahassee or Broward or, or Miami, yet he was constantly winning over people, people that were pretty Republican in their... So, Robert, obviously he was in the state house before he ran for the U.S. Senate. Uh, it was an era... We talked about this in the episode on Sidney Katz and, and the, the years after Sidney Katz. It was an era of uh, very, very conservative government in the state of Florida. Uh, and uh, he was elected uh, in 1928. He served for two years. Uh, he was uh, representing Perry, Taylor County, uh, at a time when um, the power in the state was in, in the panhandle. But he uh, controversially voted against condemning Herbert Hoover's wife for uh, dining with an African-American and uh, was, after that, not re-elected. Ran for the U.S. Senate in 1934. He challenged Park Trammell, former governor, who was then a U.S. senator, barely lost to him in the Democratic primary. And the thing that became so apparent in 1934 
was 1932 had been the Roosevelt election and New yeah. Deal politics had not come to Florida, right? The New Deal, yeah. Florida's Democratic Party remained very conservative, very bourbon. We've talked about the bourbon Democrats in the past. Pepper had the fiery oratory of, uh, of a Huey Long without the demagoguery of a Huey Long. And he was exceedingly progressive. He was a New Deal Democrat. He gave Park Trammell the scare of his life, 51-49 in that primary or in the runoff. Uh, then two years later, Duncan Fletcher passed away, Senator Fletcher. Pepper was elected to the U.S. Senate and became one of the leading liberals in Washington. And, you know, and um, for those that are listening, I, I'm sure Park Trammell is not a well-known name now. But at the time, I, I would say probably the best way to describe him was he was the uh, Bob Graham of the early 20th century. There's a lot of politicians in Florida, particularly in the governorship, where um, it, it's, kind of, it's kind of a joke that the governorship is a dead-end job. Because after you're done in the governorship, a lot of people aren't able to get elected to stuff afterwards. And uh, that was not the case for Park. He won every single election he ever tried with unprecedented amounts um really up until somebody like bob graham i mean he was universally liked and respected and revered and he was in the u.s senate for a long time and then you had somebody like claude i mean like claude pepper who you know he was he was a part of the florida bar examiner's board for a little bit he had a few terms in the florida house he was not somebody that you would naturally think could stand a chance against this towering figure. And that's, that's what Park was. I mean, he was in um, both chambers of the Florida legislature. He was a very respected former governor. Um, but, yeah, I mean, Claude really gave him a run for his money. And it was... In the era where they used to say, if you're going to run statewide, run twice, once to get your name out and twice to win. And so it was very quickly um, clear that he was this young, dynamic voice on the rise and that the days of uh, Trammell and, you know, the, the sort of swashbuckling uh, Napoleon Browards of the early uh 20th century were over and now it was the time period of Huey Long, it was the time period of fighting uh, progressivism and populism and he just took hold of that um, that mantle and he went for it and uh, as you were saying earlier, he was not the Claude Pepper liberal in the House that he would become in the US Senate and to an even larger extent in uh, the U.S. Congress after he was defeated in the U.S. Senate. Yeah, so uh, you, you mentioned uh, the, the popularity of Park Trammell. First time he was elected for governor and U.S. Senate, he won with 80, over 80% of the vote. He and Duncan Fletcher both died within, I think, a month or two of one another. Uh, yeah. Close proximity, right? And that was, uh, they were two of the longest serving office holders. Florida didn't necessarily have the reputation of, uh, of other southern states, which kept 
sending the same people to the U.S. Senate. I mean, I think about how long uh, even from Alabama, Lister Hill and, and John Sparkman served, how long um, Alan Ellender served and, and, and Russell Long from Louisiana. But the one era in Florida history where that happened was with uh, with Trammell and Fletcher, who both had been consistently elected for, I, I want to say, uh, three or four terms to the U.S. Senate. Um, and obviously... Um, as, as you mentioned, Trammell had been the governor before. So they both died within a couple of months of each other. Claude Pepper ends up in the U.S. Senate, and he was um, dynamite. Uh, that's, you know, that's, that's the word I would use to describe him, because he was just so electric as a speaker, right? And so captivating that he became the leading proponent of much of um, the New Deal legislation that was out there, even though... Uh, because he was representing Florida, he had to unfortunately cast, you know, unfortunate votes when you look at the, his overall record on, uh, on on civil rights at that time. He was, uh, he was the stereotypical New Deal senator. Yeah, that you would the, the whole New Deal platform, which, as everybody knows, was a very popular platform because it skirted the race issue. But when it came to, you know, the uh, living wage, when it came to Social Security, all of those things that were very popular with the ordinary person, he was right there. Um, but like like I said earlier, and as you just stated, he did not have the sort of courage of a Hubert Humphrey um, in the 1940s when it came in 1950s when it came to race. Now, I, I do want to point out that we're going to get through the go through the 1950. Uh, U.S. Senate race in a minute. I do want to point out that Claude Pepper was the only member of the Florida delegation to vote for the 1964 Civil Rights Act, but that was after yes. he had gotten elected to the U.S. House from uh, Miami, which was a, uh, which was like being elected from a northern city. So it's yeah. almost like uh, you can't count that as a, a vote of a deep south uh, a, a congressman. He was able to vote his conscience then when he was representing Miami. Yes. But back to the U.S. Senate. He was a firebrand liberal was a leader in the New Deal coalition, got reelected twice in 38 and 44. Harry Truman comes to office. Pepper is a, a critic of Truman. He is attacking Truman from the left. Historically, we now think of Truman, particularly on labor issues, Vito Taft-Hartley, civil rights, obviously. Truman was the most progressive president on civil rights after Ulysses Grant until the modern era, right? Uh, obviously, yeah. integrated the military Commission for Human uh, for for Civil Rights, but on some other things, he was to the right of where Roosevelt had been economically. Pepper was and and on the Cold War, right? Truman uh, with, with uh, Dean Acheson and, and George Marshall as his chief advisors on foreign policy had had uh, uh, created uh, a context for confrontation with the Soviet Union. At least initially, Pepper was much softer. The Soviet Union. Uh, which was a constant critique of, of leftist politicians in the United States at the time, that they were closeted socialists or, or closeted communists. And, and, and Claude Pepper faced that charge a lot. He was very close with Henry Wallace, encouraged Henry Wallace to run for president in 1948, looked for a way for the Democrats to nominate someone other than Harry Truman in 48. In fact... Claude Pepper. I, I, oh, sorry. I just uh, let me. No, I, I was just, just going to say I'm so glad you mentioned Henry Wallace, the former vice president, because him and Claude Pepper, they, I, I think, more than anybody, they were the two leading uh, Democratic figures that were basically 
trimmed off of national politics by Truman yeah. because um, they didn't follow his doctrine, which was very, he was very much a budget hawk. And he very clearly, from the very beginning, viewed the Soviet Union as a international threat which a lot of people didn't at the time, including Claude Pepper and Henry Wallace. Continue, sir. Yeah, so obviously Wallace is not nominated by the Democrats in 48. Truman is renominated. Uh, Oliver Stone has claimed in his the series he had on Showtime, I don't know if you saw it uh, many years ago, The Untold History of the United States, which is a kind of a leftist yeah. thing, where, where, where Henry Wallace is essentially eulogized in that entire series, that Claude Pepper was about to nominate Henry Wallace for president when the convention was gaveled down for the night. The chair was apparently, according to Stone, about to recognize Claude Pepper, who was going to nominate Wallace. According to Stone, Wallace would have carried the convention that night. Who knows if that's, in fact, historically accurate. I, I do believe Pepper would have nominated Wallace. Oh, yeah. But would he have carried the, the convention over a sitting president? Uh, even with the support of people like Claude Pepper and Eleanor Roosevelt? I don't know. But... Um, moving on, 1950, the most famous election in the history of this state besides the 2000 presidential election and the recount, uh, or I say famous in some ways infamous. The context, again, is Harry Truman. Truman calls George Smathers into a meeting at the White House and said, and we're going to do a show on George Smathers in the future because uh, uh, it's very unique that a, a, a single U.S. senator would have had the sort of close personal friendships he had with three U.S. presidents, John Kennedy, Richard Nick, uh, John Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon. That, that's almost unprecedented in American history. So George Smathers, who's not talked about much, is actually a very important figure in history, in presidential history at least. But you have to get back to this point where he's an obscure, really nothing at this point. And he gets called into the White House. He's a congressman. Truman says, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to beat that son of a bitch, Claude Pepper. And the rest is history of the 1950 race. Uh, Robert, why don't you take us through the 1950 U.S. Senate campaign? Well, well you know, and, and that was one of the, the interesting things because Smathers was a, he was a very young, very attractive, fairly rich man. Um, and he, I don't think he really had senatorial ambitions. His good friend uh, in, in the chamber was... Richard Nixon and uh, and John F. Kennedy, and both of them, uh, Nixon in particular, rose to the U.S. Senate very quickly. And it was almost as if they, they just sort of viewed the, the lower chamber as, as just a, a pit stop on their way to the U.S. Senate and eventually the presidency. Smathers was really interested in being a congressman, and he was sort of blown away by this very blatant um, pro, you know, proclamation by a U.S. president, a Democrat, telling him to run against a very powerful, uh, very influential U.S. senator, but as it would turn out, a very vulnerable U.S. senator. And right off the bat, um, the whole entire race was sort of portrayed that Claude Kirk was this no-good commie, that he really was wrong on issues like the budget. But at the same time, 
he wasn't Florida's type of senator. And that was when they, you know, they started a lot of whispers that, uh, you know, he was really more uh, a northerner when it came to issues like civil rights, when it came to, you know, uh, racial equality. And then you had somebody like Smathers, who was totally comfortable when it came to things like segregation. And so very clearly, almost at once, this was one of the, the first races in state history where it was almost, at least you know, in terms of the U.S. Senate, where it was almost not even a national race. There was a, hardly any national topics that were being discussed. It was all squarely about these two people's identities and the parallels between them. And uh, Smathers was able to get a lot of support and a lot of money very, very quickly, kind of shocked Pepper. I don't think Pepper took him um, as a serious threat in much the same way that, you know, Park didn't take Pepper as a serious threat a generation before. And um, as a result, I don't even think, I don't even think Pepper was able to get a runoff. I think it was almost lock, stock, and barrel. Smathers just obliterated him in the primary. Yeah, particularly uh, in, in the urban counties uh, up and down the, uh, what we would call the I-95 corridor now, but the, the yeah. Florida East Coast uh, Railway line, uh, where the DuPont interests, that the moneyed interests have a lot of power in the state. George Ball, um, oh, sorry, it's not George Ball, Ed Ball. I was thinking foreign policy, right, because we're talking about uh, Dean Atchison earlier. Uh, Ed, Ed Ball and uh, and the um, influence he had in taking out Pepper. Uh, we have to make – we have to talk about the, the negativity of this campaign. Uh, David Brinkley, the, the late David Brinkley, late great David Brinkley, uh, even said once that this was the dirtiest campaign in his mind in the history uh, of American politics. And uh, – it happened the same year uh, as uh, uh, Joe McCarthy came of age, and uh, we and, and you mentioned Richard Nixon, and he he was uh, pals with uh, George Smathers in in the uh, in the uh, U.S. House of Representatives. They, the, the, at the same time, he uh, ran a similar campaign in a general election against uh, uh, Helen Gahagan Douglas. Uh, uh -huh. yeah, so this was one of the dirtiest, nastiest campaigns on record anywhere. Uh, in the United States, pamphlets like the red record of Senator Claude Pepper were circulated. Uh, there were allegations that Pepper was aligned with all of these communist front groups and was uh, essentially a proxy of Joseph Stalin and, and, and uh, Moscow. And uh, uh, you had uh, the allegations even from mainstream writers and mainstream journalists, people that were well respected, that uh, that uh, Claude Pepper was a quote pinko or was a, 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 a socialist or communist. These words were all used. Obviously, he had uh, supported uh, uh, issues like universal health care, which is still something that if you support in this country, you get labeled a socialist. Uh, and think about this. This is 1950, and this is in a very conservative state at the time in Florida. Things were beginning to change at that point. Uh, you've written a book about Dan McCarty's uh, political career and his, uh, his near miss in 1948 and, of course, his, his victory in 1952, which began to change uh, the trajectory of the state politically. And then, of course, 
Uh, the big event being Leroy Collins' victory in the runoff against Charlie Johnson in 1954. But uh, we're still not at that point in 1950. We're still in an era when you had people like Governor Cohn, and we mentioned Park Trammell and Duncan Fletcher and these sorts of conservative Carrie Hardy, these very conservative-type Democrats getting elected in the state, Claude Pepper being the one exception to that, but it was still a conservative state. George Smathers tapped into all of that and won that primary. There was no runoff, as you mentioned. There there were um, photos circulated throughout Florida, Pepper with... with, with uh, Pictures of him with with uh, African American. Pictures of uh, him with Joseph Stalin that circulated around the state. And uh, these tactics were used in the Democratic primary. Let's remember the timeline. The Democratic primary in Florida was, I believe, in those days uh, in May. That playbook was then repeated by George Smathers' friend, Richard Nixon, in the general election in California in November against Helen Gahagan Douglas. And in that interim period, Joseph McCarthy had become incredibly powerful. Miller Tidings had been defeated in Maryland. Tidings, who was a pretty conservative Democrat, but uh, one of the few senators who had opted to take on McCarthy in 1950. So it was a, a combination of the year, Robert, 1950, the rise of McCarthyism, uh, the rise of Nixonism, if you want to call it that, uh, Alger Hiss, all of that had just happened, Whitaker Chambers. And then the fact that Florida was still a very conservative state. Um, and it, it, the 1950 election makes me very sad. I'm just going to be, I, I try not to be very political about, uh, or be very partisan on this show. But it's still something that I have a very hard time as a Floridian accepting happened in this state. And yes, I will admit I am a, a massive fan of Claude Pepper. I think he's one of the, the greatest Floridians of all time. Uh, well, but, well, he certainly he certainly lost the battle, but won the war. I think yeah. in the long run. Um, yeah, let's transition to that. Let's transition to his but, house career. But but I I will state that um, nineteen fifty, and you know, and and we talked a little bit about nineteen forty eight, and and um, you know that was a very turbulent uh, Democratic convention. Um, most of the southern delegation left. They stormed out. Um, I mean, it was it was just anarchy. It was bedlam. Right and after you, uh, you mentioned Hubert Humphrey. Sorry to yeah. uh, jump in, but you mentioned yeah, Hubert no. Humphrey earlier. Uh, after Hubert Humphrey gave a, a speech in favor of civil rights in the keynote, and it was very clear that Harry Truman had made this calculation politically. I mean, I think uh, he, he was. Uh, a man who came around. He was he he was a very prejudiced man. He had voted with the Southerners when he was in the U.S. Senate against, uh, you know, he he had voted against any kind of ban on lynching or attempts to to restrict lynching, etc. But when he got to the presidency, he grew, um, and he uh, I think World War II affected Harry Truman a lot because he saw African Americans fight and die for their country, and that changed his perspective. But I do also want to mention there was a political calculation, which was Truman felt like. There was a growing African-American vote in the big cities of the North. And this is a time for people that may not may, may think in the red and blue states of today. This was a time when the Republican Party was still very strong in the upper Midwest 
and in the Northeast. So in order to win New York, in order to win Illinois, in order to win Michigan, if you were a Democrat, you really had to win. Uh, you, ha- you really had to turn some votes into cities. And I think there was a political calculation that if you could get enough African-Americans to vote for you, because obviously in the South, they had all been disenfranchised. So that didn't matter. It wasn't the, the African-American vote in, in southern states. It was the African-American vote specifically in big cities like Cleveland, Detroit, Chicago, New York City, Philadelphia, that was uh, on Truman's mind. And so the convention, in spite of all these Southerners being there and it being a very Southern party at the time, the Democrats, the convention had started to talk about civil rights. They had had African-Americans as delegates and that alarmed the Southerners. They walked out. They ran Strom Thurmond as a third party candidate. Strom carried a couple of states. He did not carry Florida, but he carried he, he carried uh, uh, Alabama, Mississippi, I believe, uh, maybe Louisiana, probably Louisiana uh, yeah, and, and his home and state of South, South Carolina. Carolina. Yeah, right, yeah. right. So he won all the deep South states other than Georgia. And I think Georgia, the Democrats held largely through Richard Russell's efforts um, in, in uh, 48. But uh, that's the context of, of that convention. It was Bedlam, as you mentioned. Yeah. And by, you know, by 1950, which you mentioned Russell, uh, Russell, the senator from Georgia, was really turning into the lion of the U.S. Senate. And by 1950, you saw um, the cracks of the New Deal Democrat coalition that were beginning to form in 1948, you saw them basically uh, come to fruition. I mean, they started to spiral out of control and break, and um, you had people, Democratic leaders in the South, that were no longer going to tolerate what Northern Democrats and Western Democrats were wanting to do. Um, And there was no longer this consensus towards economic issues that had held the party together the past 16, 20 years. The race was now taking hold. It was going to become the dominant issue of that generation of American life. Everybody knew it. Everybody could sense it. And you had people like Lyndon Johnson that were trying to basically stall it, table it, as long as they could. There was people like Russell that was totally opposed to it. There was people like Hubert Humphrey when he uh, became senator of Minnesota, who was always at the forefront trying to push it. And then there was a lot of senators like Smathers and John F. Kennedy who were trying to duck it. And Claude Pepper was not somebody that his region thought would side with somebody like a Russell. They kind of saw from the get-go, this is where everything's coming. This is where we're headed. Pepper's not one of us. Right. And and And, it it also hurt, I think, Pepper, that there was an effort uh, by – by maybe it is an accurate claim that Ms. Mathers uh, and and uh, the the, main, the mainstream Democrats, as I would call them, the establishment Democrats, uh, began to accuse Northerners of coming into the state to register African Americans. Whether it was Northern labor bosses, as they alleged, doing this, or it was just 
a campaign effort. There was an effort to register African-American voters in Florida who had been disenfranchised, knowing that in a Pepper Smathers race, they would vote for Pepper. Um, and that seemed to have backfired because obviously there was still massive disenfranchisement in Florida of African-Americans. And uh, even registering one African-American could create a backlash among 100,000 whites in, in, a, in a southern state. And that's uh, another thing that hurt Pepper in that race. And let's, I mean, let's just call a spade a spade here. We're all friends here. Smathers not only courted the racist vote, he bought an engagement ring. I mean, you'll, and you know, I, we're not really one for conspiracy theories or things that are not properly cited on this show. But, you know, you'll you'll hear things that Smathers would go to rallies, that he would meet with leaders of white, you know, white councils, um, not necessarily the KKK, but, you know, the sort of respectable. Um, right. The citizens councils, which is just yeah, a step like the up. Right? They're, they're, yeah, they're, they're not the hoodlums that the Klan are, but they're the insurance yeah. uh, guys in town and the undertaker. And they're all the people who uh who use economic intimidation to stop African-Americans from from exercising their rights in this society. And, and, you know, so he was not he was not the kind of person that would, you know, be seen with the, the KKK. But he was certainly in favor of meeting and establishing connections with all of these these um, councils. And they were in every single city every single state and they were a very powerful network and they weren't getting anything from claude pepper and pepper pretty much told them to go to hell he didn't like what they were doing he saw that they were making sure that african americans weren't coming to their neighborhoods weren't able to go to the polling places um and he didn't like it and a, a lot of southerners that were in uh government i'm sure didn't like it per se but it was their bread and butter and they weren't going to go against it and and basically um everybody kind of knew that smathers was somebody that could be cajoled to voting the right way and that did pepper him and so he you know he was forced out of politics he went to his law firm for a while uh licked his wounds And then he did, uh, like I said earlier, one of the great political comebacks of American history. Um, I'd like to kind of compare it to John Quincy Adams. He's sort of defeated from the White House. Uh, He goes home. He was, you know, sort of a moderate when he was in the U.S. Senate. Didn't really want to go all in on the abolitionist cause. And then he gets a seat in U.S. Congress, and he becomes one of the great congressmen in American history, uh, just a revered, worshipped figure, um, the dean of the House. And that is exactly what happened with Claude Pepper. He went from being somebody that wasn't in favor of compliance, but, you know, wasn't really a full profile in courage when it came to race, when it came to a lot of issues. And then he became this champion, this crusading figure. 
And I don't think Medicare, I don't think Medicaid, I don't think the civil rights movement had a better friend in Florida than Claude Pepper. No, uh, in fact, in the nation. And so let's, uh, let's, let's uh, transition to that. You talked about the 1980s, and Claude Pepper dies in 1989. I still remember the day he died um, and how, um, how difficult it was here in South Florida. I was a kid, but he was revered. Um, but he became the person that the liberal congressman, the Democratic congressman, congresswoman that are running for re-election in a tough re-election wanted to bring into their district. Not just here in Florida, not just in South Florida like your grandfather, not just here in the state of Florida, but everywhere around the country. They wanted Claude Pepper, who was at that point an American political legend on the left, to come in and give his oratory and fire up the crowd. He was basically treated as the third senator from Florida or, you know, the Senate emeritus of Florida. And, um, it, you know, it's so fascinating that you look at the 1980s and people just instinctively think of it as the Reagan revolution or, you know, the this sort of era in American politics that are just dominated by Ronald Reagan. And what is so fascinating is, is that he was constantly losing congressional seats left and right, and in particular, 1982. Yep. And there was a huge wave. That was where you saw people like Buddy McKay coming into to the House of Representatives. 82 was important. Let me point this out, because even though the yeah. Democrats had the majority in the House and Tip O'Neill was the speaker after the 1980 election, the Republicans in coalition with a lot of Southern Democrats essentially had working control of the House. So while there were 240 Democrats, or two, I think the number was like two, 238, 240, they had a, they had a healthy majority of about 50 seats uh, in, that, in the U.S. House. There was a coalition of uh, an entire block of Republicans, minus maybe 10 or 15 moderate Republicans from, from the Midwest and the Northeast, plus about 50 Southern Democrats, the bull weevils, as they were called, right, later to become the blue dogs, that uh, were giving Ronald Reagan legislative victory after legislative victory, including on his tax cuts and the budget in 1981. Key, key vote. U.S. Senate, the Republicans had taken control in 1980. So effectively, the Republicans had complete control of government on uh, working control, at least on many issues. So 1982 is important because Claude Pepper was the most sought after Democrat in yes. these key House districts to, to rail against incumbent Republicans and Reaganomics. And he did. And he, he was effectively called the uh, godfather of the 1982 um, elections. Yeah, the Democratic landslide, yeah. Yeah, because there was, I mean, probably upwards of 45 new uh, um, House members or, you know, 35 new House members that revered him because he made sure they got elected. And the, the main reason why you saw these gains was because Ronald Reagan went after Medicare and you'll see it now. You'll see now when a Republican, there's a Republican president and there's a Republican uh, house of representatives and a Senate, they don't go after Medicare. And the reason why is Medicare is the most popular thing in a, in us political life or private life. You know, if it was a human being and it ran for president, it would get like 75%. It 
it is just a very important part of day-to-day life. And Ronald Reagan went after it, and that was the, like a laser beam, that was the issue that Claude Kirk, uh, Claude Pepper had, and he took it from every end of the country. And it was something that they could run against, that Democrats could say, you know, you were, you were tough on Jimmy Carter, you didn't like him, you were souring on us, you said, well, let's give the charismatic guy a try, and look what he's doing, he's trying to take away your Medicare. And that was it. There was a whole lot new, uh, fresh faces. And uh, it was really, I would say, probably one of the crowning achievements of his congressional career was this landslide. Yeah, and, and I, I was talking to, I, I, it's escaping me who I had this conversation with um, several years ago, but um, they told me there are only a, a select number of House members that drive a president crazy. And the top two in this person's mind was William Miller from New York, who was actually the father, ironically enough, of Stephanie Miller, who's a very liberal, uh, obviously, commentator. But uh, uh, William Miller was a right-wing congressman uh, who drove Lyndon Johnson crazy. Drove him so crazy, Barry Goldwater put him on the ticket in 1964. And then Claude Pepper with Ronald Reagan. That Pepper just, anytime Pepper came on the television, anytime Pepper gave a speech, it just drove Reagan crazy. Now, Pepper defeated Reagan effectively in the polls in 1982. And, you know, it's so amazing because you look at the wave of Democrats that came in in the 1970s, the 1980s, what are, you know, now considered the golden age of uh, political life and of legislative life. Um, All of them universally revered Pepper. They, um, if if not a mentor, they thought of him, you know, as as sort of this moderately heroic figure. And you saw this person who, you know, really there's, there's two careers of Claude Pepper. There was this guy that we talked about who, um, you know, would sometimes not vote his conscience and he got defeated anyway and so you had this second guy who had no restraints and at the same time he was a very likable ordinary guy and i don't think his district in congress has ever had a democrat since him since he passed well, away they just elected one uh, now okay. in the in the but, uh, anti-trump uh, year of 18, sure, but yeah, sure. but it was 30 years after that. Right? Yeah, and it was, and you know, it was very telling. It was because they liked him. He was, you know, sort of similar to Senator Stone in, in Illinois. There were people, conservative Republicans, that would vote for him because they trusted him. He had that elusive authenticity <laughs> that a, a lot of people in politics search for and can never really master. He had it very, very easily. And as a result, when he, um, when he does pass away in the 1980s, you see multiple governors, multiple U.S. senators, uh, uh, all the chieftains in national and Florida life are coming to pay tribute to this, this individual who has meant so much to them and, um, and who they have revered who has now passed away. And it was uh, it was really like a, a shining light went out in Florida, as specifically in South Florida. I don't think um, they were ever as strong again as they were 
Yeah, the, the, the death of Claude Pepper really affected Democrats in, in a very... Uh, and I, I, I would say it was, it was uh, the death of Claude Pepper and the loss of Dante Fussell in Congress affected uh-huh. Democrats throughout um, Miami-Dade, Broward, and, and Palm Beach counties. Uh, even though the areas, Pepper's district didn't, but there are other areas continued to elect Democrats. Uh, but there just wasn't that level of leadership or that le- level of reverence of any local politician. I would say the only one that came close was Bob Butterworth, who was our attorney uh-huh. general. Uh, was obviously from Broward County, and I think in South Florida he was uh, particularly popular. But we haven't really seen someone like Claude Pepper emerge um, from South Florida or emerge with the level of popularity and influence in South Florida and credibility uh, since his, his death. And I mentioned the, the other one that was similar was Dante Fussell um, and maybe Bill Lehman, and they all kind of disappeared at the same time, right, from the political scene. And in the case of Pepper, he passed. The other two... Uh, uh, retired from politics and, and, and passed soon after that. So I think it, it was, a, it was a, a bygone era and something that uh, a lot of people in South Florida are hoping to regain. One last thing I want to mention, and we've obviously gone long on this episode, which is not surprising, seeing who we're talking about. Uh, Claude Pepper, on the cover of Time Magazine in 1938 as a U.S. Senator, is on the cover of Time Magazine in 1983 as a U.S. House member who has been the driving force, maybe the second most influential Democrat in the country behind Tip O'Neill, to deliver this massive landslide. And, and I should mention, Pepper, throughout the 1980s, until his death, was the chairman of the Rules Committee uh, of the House. So behind, uh, behind uh, uh, Speaker O'Neill and, uh, and Majority Leader Jim Wright, later Speaker Jim Wright, uh, he was the most powerful Democrat in the country. Uh, this was a time when the Republicans held, had controlled the U.S. Senate, they had the presidency, uh, most of the governorships were held by Democrats, but uh, the U.S. House was really the stopgap. Um, and uh, particularly, I, I would say, the, 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 the uh, years of the right speakership, uh, those last couple of years, which were the last couple of years of Claude Pepper's uh, life. He passed away uh, the same within, I think, a month of uh, Jim Wright and Tony Coelho having to resign from the House, uh, two of the Democratic leaders who the House became a, kind of a more passive place. Uh, allowing for the Republicans and Newt Gingrich. Actually, totally off topic, Newt Gingrich came of age because in a very partisan fashion, he went after Jim Wright. Uh, but uh, that was really a passing of a time. Claude Pepper passes away. Tip O'Neill has retired. Jim Wright, who recently passed away, just not that long ago, Jim Wright and Tony Coelho both uh, um, forced to resign. So um, that was the, uh, the culmination of the Reagan revolution, really, was after Reagan was out of office. So thank you once again for listening to the Florida History Podcast. We'll be back next week with another new edition of the Florida History Podcast.